Chapter 11 of The Life of St. Paul. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of St. Paul by Francis Alice Forbes. Chapter 11 The City That Has Foundations. The Roman authorities treated Paul with indulgence for the report of Festus had been strongly in his favour, and the centurion Julius had nothing but good to say of his prisoner. He was allowed to live in a private lodging of his own, where everyone who wished might come to him. This was all that the apostle desired, for to a certain extent it made it possible for him to continue his ministry. That he was a prisoner he could never for a moment forget, for a soldier of the praetorian guard, whose wrist was fastened by a light chain to his own, was responsible for his safety, and was always at his side. Never for one moment could he be alone, but what to most people would have been an intolerable burden was to him but another chance of winning a soul to Christ. The keepers succeeded each other at intervals. All but the most brutal of these men, must have felt Paul's influence, drawing them to higher and nobler things. Some, in their turn, probably became apostles, and spread the face of Christ amongst their fellow soldiers, for the number of Christians in Rome increased greatly during the time of Paul's imprisonment. The apostle's first thought was as usual for those of his own nation. He sent messages to the chief men amongst the Jews, begging them to come to him. It was hard indeed to discourage this great-hearted servant of Christ. From the Jews he had received on his own evidence five cruel scourgings. Since the moment when he had fled from Damascus to escape their vengeance, they had plotted to murder him in nearly every city where he had preached the faith. His imprisonment at Caesarea and in Rome was their doing. Yet now, when they came to him in answer to his message, he could say to them in all sincerity that he had nothing of which to accuse his nation. Disappointment awaited him here as elsewhere. The greater number refused to believe the gospel. He could forgive and forget their treatment of himself, but not their treatment of his master. Well did Isaiah's prophecy of you, he cried, with the ear you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. Know therefore that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. There was already a large Christian community in Rome, amongst whose members were many old friends of earlier days. Scattered abroad, through the cities of Greece and Macedonia, by the Edict of Claudius, they had now returned, for Claudius was dead, and a monster called Nero sat on the imperial throne. There were Christians even in the household of the emperor, for his wild beast nature had not as yet fully revealed itself. Christians amongst the noblest families in the city, as well as amongst the poorest. Mark was in Rome, and Paul could now speak of him as a true and faithful friend. 
Bring Mark with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. He was to write in later years to Timothy. Epaphroditus, a faithful disciple of Philippi, had arrived in Rome with offerings from the Philippians. Lydia and her friends had heard of his imprisonment and were ready to do all they could to prove their affection and sympathy. Epaphroditus had fallen ill and had been sick nigh unto death since his arrival. Paul hastened to send by the hands of Timothy a letter full of love and gratitude to the Christians at Philippi, thanking them for their kind thought of him. Their beloved Epaphroditus God had cured, he told them, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. The Ephesians had also heard of Paul's imprisonment and were overwhelmed by the news. The apostle dispatched Tychicus to Ephesus with a letter of comfort. Paul was the prisoner of Jesus Christ, he reminded them, praying them not to faint at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Luke, the most dear physician, was with him, and the faithful Aristarchus, Demas also, who was later under the stress of persecution to fall away from the faith, and other disciples. The preaching of this ambassador in a chain touched the Gentiles to the heart and strengthened the Christians in their preaching of the faith. All who came to Paul found help and sympathy. Amongst others, a runaway slave called Anesimus, who, having robbed his master Philemon, a Christian of Colossea, had fled to Rome. This outcast, too, Paul won to Christ and sent him back to ask pardon of his master. I beseech you, for my son Onesimus, he wrote, whom I have begotten in my bonds, and whom I send back to you. If you look on me as a brother, receive him as myself. The imprisonment dragged on for two long years, at the end of which Paul was set at liberty. He had scarcely left Rome when a terrible persecution broke out against the Christians. The idea had entered the wicked head of the emperor to build himself a palace that should be more magnificent than anything the world had seen. He would show them what a Caesar could do. No expense was spared to carry his plan into execution, but the space at his disposal was not large enough to please his ambitious taste. The poorer quarters, chiefly inhabited by Jews and Christians, were in his way. Suddenly, one July day, a terrible fire broke out in the crowded part of the city that lay nearest to the new palace. Street after street was consumed, until the whole valley was like a blazing furnace. Scarcely had it died down when the flames burst forth again. Rumor whispered, that the men sent by Nero to fight against the fire helped rather than hindered its spreading. It was said that the emperor had been seen on the roof of his palace, singing of the fall of Troy, and exulting in the sight of the blazing city. He was already hated for his crimes. Rome had grown weary of the monster's tyranny. The emperor realized that he had gone too far, his popularity was in danger. 
someone must be found to bear the blame. An evil counsellor suggested the Christians. They were an unpopular sect, disliked and despised by the Romans. Nero caught eagerly at the idea. The story was at once circulated that the Christians had set fire to the city. They were enemies of the state and of the people. This was the more readily believed, as the fire had broken out in their quarter, and men, women, and children were seized and cast into prison. The evil mind of Nero then conceived a new idea. In putting the Christians to a fearful death, he might at the same time ensure his own popularity by providing an exciting entertainment for his subjects. The Romans loved the cruel sights of the arena, the combats with wild beasts, the fights of the gladiators. He would give them the chance of indulging their taste to the utmost. A great festival was announced to take place in the circus that the emperor had built for himself in the gardens that lay at the foot of the Vatican Hill, and the citizens of Rome were invited to attend. Posts had been set up at regular intervals, to which the Christians had been bound. The entertainment was now to begin. Panthers, lions, and other wild beasts were let loose in the arena, and springing upon the martyrs, tore them limb from limb. A fresh batch of Christians were then brought out, wrapped in the skins of wild beasts. These were hunted to death by ferocious dogs which had been made more savage by hunger. But the triumph of cruelty was reserved for the evening. Into the ground huge stakes had been driven, on which the Christians, wrapped in tunics soaked in pitch and sulphur, were impaled and set on fire. In the light of these fearful torches a chariot race was held, in which the emperor himself took part. He was in the highest spirits. Surely his lost popularity would now be regained after such a day as he had given to the people. But he had gone too far, even for the Romans. Murmurs of horror and pity broke out amongst the crowd. The chariot race was scarcely applauded. The citizens returned home ill-content. Nero's plan had failed. In the dead of the night, men and women crept silently into the deserted gardens to gather up the relics of their dead, those first fruits of the martyrs who had given their lives for Christ. They were reverently buried in a secret place, and as the day dawned, the disciples crept back again to their hiding places. The persecutions continued to rage. Edicts were issued against the Christians all over the Roman Empire. Those who had not courage to face death fled into the neighboring countries. Dearly beloved, think not strange the burning heat which is to try you, as if some new thing happened to you, says St. Peter in his epistle to the churches of Asia, written at Rome about this time. If you partake of the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. If you be reproached for Christ, you shall be blessed. So were the Christians strengthened for the coming storm, that they might glorify God in this name. 
The years had gone by, and Paul was in Rome, again a prisoner. The brethren no longer thronged about him, for it was death for them to be recognized. The faithful Onesiphorus, who had followed him to Rome, had to make a long search before he discovered Paul's prison. I am even now ready to be sacrificed, he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, and the time of my dissolution is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. St. Peter had also been taken. According to tradition, the two apostles shared the same prison and were destined to suffer martyrdom at the same time, St. Peter being crucified within the city and St. Paul beheaded without the walls. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and lead thee whither thou wouldst not go, the master had said to Peter, signifying, adds the evangelist, by what death he should glorify God. To Peter also it had been revealed that the end was near. I think it meet to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, he writes in his second epistle to the churches shortly before his death, being assured that the laying away of this my tabernacle is at hand, according as our Lord Jesus Christ has signified to me. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. That St. Paul was twice brought up for trial we know, from the letter written from his prison in Rome to Timothy at Ephesus. On the first occasion he had been delivered out of the mouth of the lion, but he knew that the respite was short, and the second trial could have but one ending. There was in Rome neither justice nor mercy for a Christian. Make haste to come to me quickly, he writes. Only Luke is with me. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, especially the parchments, make haste to come before winter. Eubulus and Pudens, and Linus and Claudius, and all the brethren salute thee. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. They led him out along the Ostian way to a spot far from the crowded city. A little band of soldiers surrounded him, three of whom were to be won to Christ by the death of the martyr. His eyes looked out over the sunlit Campania to the far horizon and the blue Italian sky, but they saw none of these things. It was a fairer vision that strengthened him for the last fight and beckoned him to a glorious eternity. For that which is at present momentary and light of our tribulation worketh for us above measure exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. End of chapter 11 And end of the life of St. Paul by Francis Alice Forbes